Well, hey, good morning, everybody. My name is Ben. I'm the campus pastor here. And hey, I want to invite you to turn your, to, in your Bibles to John chapter 3. If you didn't bring your Bibles, there's some under the chairs around you. If you don't own a Bible, I want to invite you to take one of those as your own. It's our gift to you. Uh, but John chapter 3 is where we're going to spend most of our time today, so you can just hold your place there. I'm going to assume that most everyone here this morning knows the name Lance Armstrong. Without Lance, most of us wouldn't know that riding your bike was something adults did as a sport. Uh, I'm sorry for those of you who are into cycling, but prior to 2012, Lance was best known uh, for battling and defeating a potentially fatal bout with cancer and then going on to win the Tour de France seven consecutive times between 1999 and 2005. He was considered by many to be the greatest cyclist to ever live. But in 2012, all of that changed when it was decided that Armstrong had likely used performance-enhancing drugs to give him an edge in those races. And as a result, he was stripped of all of those titles. Now, many people who were fans of Armstrong, they felt confused. Some were angry. Some were, were bitter, hurt, sad, wondering what was fact and what was fiction. But after an interview where Armstrong admitted uh, to at least some of the charges, some of the allegations, there wasn't much question left in anyone's mind whether or not he was guilty. And when I think about the story of Lance Armstrong, it makes me wonder why. Why would someone do something like that? Why would you potentially jeopardize your career, your integrity, everything that you've worked so hard for? Why? What could possibly be worth that risk? But before we go and throw Lance under the bike, <laughs> see what I did there? I wonder, have you ever taken credit for something that you didn't deserve? Has there ever been a time when you accepted praise or recognition that belonged to someone else. And before you answer that out loud, I already know the answer. Because you and I both suffer from the exact same condition. There's something inside of us that makes us want to lift ourselves up to show that we're better than the rest, that, that we're the, the strongest, we're capable of things that others are not. We're self-reliant, we're self-promoters, we're self-seekers, self-centered, and left to ourselves, we'll do almost anything to make others think more of us. You want to know what's really amazing to me, though? Jesus never did that. He never did that. Think about that for a minute. Jesus was fully God, but he never exalted himself. Philippians 2 tells us that though he was in very nature God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be used to his own advantage. That is to say that in his humanity, he never played the God card. He didn't use his God nature to his own advantage. Paul says, rather, he made himself nothing. He took on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So the God-man Jesus, who was in very nature God and in whom the fullness of deity dwelt, he chose to never view his godness as something to be used to his advantage. In fact, he, he chose to veil his deity so that his humanity could be fully expressed. Charles Ryrie said it this way, Never less than God, he chose to live his life as never more than man. And in his humanity, Jesus showed us what it means to be fully human. He showed us how to live. He showed us what our priorities should be. And this is so important. If we're to reach the goal that's laid out for us in 1 John 2, 6, that whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. 
That's what we're after here. We want to walk as Jesus walked. And so we've spent the last four weeks studying how Jesus walked, how he lived. We've seen that Jesus prioritized following the Holy Spirit. It's that voice saying, this is the way, walk in it. Jesus prioritized prayer. Over 40 times in the Gospels, we read about Jesus going off and praying, going to a lonely place, often spending all night in communication with his Father. And after he prayed and knew what the Father was asking of him, he was always obedient. He made obedience to the Father a priority. That Philippians passage that we read earlier, it tells us that he became obedient even to death on a cross, but he wasn't only obedient to death on a cross. He lived a life of obedience that led all the way to the cross. And last week, we saw that Jesus made a priority of the word, God's word, the Bible. He studied it, he memorized it, he used it to teach and to correct and to rebuke and to train in righteousness, and those are the same things that we can use the word for today. And this morning, we're going to look at this fifth priority of Jesus, the reality that he always exalted his Father. And Jesus established this priority early on in his ministry. We're going to see that in John chapter 3. Now, most of you are very familiar with a specific verse from John chapter 3, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. But I wonder if you're as familiar with the context of that passage. So let me set it up for you a little bit before we jump into it. By the time we get to John chapter 3, word is getting out about Jesus. People are talking about what he's been doing and what he's been saying. And there's one particular Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who's curious. But he's cautious about his curiosity. He wants to hear more of what Jesus has to say. But look at what happens in John 3, starting in verse 1. It says, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Pause right there. Nicodemus is big time. Okay, he's a member of the Jewish ruling council. He's a man of certain power and authority and status among the Jewish people. Verse 2 says, he came to Jesus at night. And that's interesting, isn't it? Why did he come at night? We're going to look at that. He said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. No one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. So Nicodemus, he, he's curious about Jesus. He says he believes that Jesus has come from God, and, and yet he comes under the cover of night. He comes sneaking off to see, to see Jesus. Why does he do that? Well, I think it's because Nicodemus is afraid of what people will think. He doesn't want his fellow Pharisees to know that he's interested in what it is that Jesus has to say. And so, so he sneaks off to see Jesus under the cover of night and to ask him some questions. And Jesus and Nicodemus, they begin a conversation. You can read the whole thing later for yourself, but let me just summarize it for you. Jesus tells Nicodemus that in order to see the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is confused about this, and he pictures trying to get back into his mother's womb, which is weird and gross. But Jesus says, Nicodemus, I'm not talking about your mama, I'm talking about the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to tell him, you know, I'm talking about your need for new life. And Nicodemus, he still doesn't get it, so Jesus gives it to him as plain as he possibly can. And in verse 16, he says, Nicodemus, God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but would have everlasting life. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. 
He sent his son in the world to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in God's one and only son. Nicodemus, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light. They won't come into the light because they're afraid that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in God. That what they have done has been done in God. Now you're saying that's not what that says. It says in the sight of God. Well, here's what I want you to do. If you're using one of our Bibles or an NIV that says in the sight of God, I want you to cross out the words the sight of God. Of. And before you call me a heretic or accuse me of changing the word of God, let me tell you why this is important. What the NIV translates as in the sight of God reads like this in the Greek. Can we put that up? In theos. It literally means in God. And older versions of the NIV got this right, but in 2011, for whatever reason, they changed the wording of this verse and they added the words the sight of and it lost the whole point of this passage. And I think this just goes to show, like we talked about last week with the word, we've got to be students of the word. We've got to study it. Whatever, whatever translation you choose, whatever translation you like to read, we've got to be students. We've got to study the word. And with the internet and the tools that are available, it's not just for us pastors or people who went to Bible college. Everyone can study the word of God now. I don't read Greek. I have a, a website I go to that reads Greek for me. But here's the deal. This is why this is so important. Let me tell you. Because Jesus is telling this Pharisee that it's not about his performance or what he needs to do in the sight of God. But rather, it's about what God wants to do in him. It's God doing it. It's God's work, not ours. The Pharisees were all about exalting themselves, always trying to follow the rules to earn God's favor. But what Jesus is pointing out is that any good that we do Anything good that's in our lives, it's actually done in God, and it's actually done by God, and he deserves all the glory and all the praise for it. If it's our good done in the sight of God, then it's something good we've done, but that's not what this passage is saying. It's saying that the good that we do is done in God, by God. Do you see why this wording is so important? Listen, if we're going to walk as Jesus walked, we're going to have to realize that exalting the Father is about acknowledging God as the source of everything good in our lives. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. Exalting the Father is about acknowledging God as the source of everything good in our lives. Jesus spent his entire life and ministry exalting the Father because he knew that God was the source of everything good in his life. Let me show you just in the book of John uh, how this played out and that it's true. You can try to keep up with me in your Bible if you want to. I would more recommend that maybe you just write down these references and then look them up later on in your own time. But watch how Jesus never considers equality with God something to be grasped, but rather how he always exalts the Father. First one, John 5, 19 says this. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. 
Jesus says he can do nothing by himself. He can only do what the Father is doing. And how many times do you or I determine to do something and then we ask God to get on board with us? You know, God, I've got something good going here. I know the path I want my life to go. Come on and bless it. Jesus never did that. He always looked at what his father was doing, and then he got on board with the father's agenda, and he exalted the father in doing that. Here's another one. John 5.30, Jesus says, By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Jesus wasn't out to please himself. He was always trying to please the father, always exalting the father. John 8, 28, Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own, but I speak just what the Father has taught me. Jesus says, I don't do anything, I don't say anything that I don't see the Father doing or hear the Father saying. I'm only looking to exalt Him. John 10, 32, Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? Did you know that Jesus never took credit for any of the good works that he did? Think about all the people Jesus healed, the people he raised from the dead, the thousands of people that he fed. How easy would it have been to to use those situations to his own advantage, to gain glory for himself, but he doesn't do that. He says all of these good works, they're from the Father, and he exalts the Father for the good that he has done. John 12, 49 through 50, I didn't speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I've spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Again, Jesus says, these words that I'm saying, I'm not just making them up. It's what the Father said to me. You marvel at my teaching, it's from the Father. You think my words are amazing, they're from the Father. Jesus always redirected people's attention and their focus and their praise back to the Father. Last one, John 15, 15. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says this, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. Think about this. Jesus is very near to the end of his life in this passage and he takes this opportunity one last time to refocus his disciples' direction to the, to the Father. Even at the very end of his life, when he knows intense suffering is before him, his priority is not to draw attention to himself, not to exalt himself, but to exalt the Father. And if you and I are going to walk as Jesus walked, exalting the Father has got to become our priority too. And we've got a choice to make in this. We've got to choose whether we will exalt ourselves or exalt the Father. You can't do both. You can't pursue your glory and God's glory at the same time. You've got to make a choice. In fact, Jesus says in Luke 14, all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And what I want you to see this morning is this. In order to exalt the Father, we must first humble ourselves. If we're going to exalt the Father, we're going to have to humble ourselves. What does that look like? What is humility? I heard a a great definition last week. I was listening to a sermon online. I wish I could tell you who it was, but I I turned the radio on mid-sermon. But here's what the pastor said. He said, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. You catch that difference? It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself 
less. Humility isn't about degrading yourself or thinking things that clearly go against God's word. Do you know what God's word says about you? It says that you were fearfully and wonderfully made, Psalm 139. It says you are loved, John 3.16. It says he cares about you, 1 Peter 5.7. It says you have value, Matthew 6.25-34. But his word also says don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to, Romans 12.3. See, true humility comes when we recognize that our value and our worth and everything good about us is from God. He created you. He has gifted you. He has called you to use those gifts in your very life for his glory and his purposes. He has saved you, not so that you will feel better about yourself or so that people will be, you know, impressed by you, but so that his name would be made known through your life and his glory would be seen in you. And when you live all of your life for all of the glory of God, that's true humility. You know who I think uh, did a really great job of modeling this for us is John the Baptist. Are you all familiar with John? Did you know John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin? Jesus' mom, Mary, and John's mom, Elizabeth, they were sisters. You can read all about it in uh, Luke chapter 1. We know that John was just a little older than Jesus, around six months older. But all the details are there in Luke chapter 1 if you want to read it later. But you know what the Old Testament says about John? Check out these passages. In Malachi 4, 5, it says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And John, he was the prophet like Elijah that Malachi spoke of. And in Isaiah, it says, A voice of one called calling in the wilderness prepare the way for the lord make straight in the desert a highway for our god john was the prophet like elijah and do you know where he set up camp literally to run his ministry he was in the desert he was literally one calling in the desert prepare the way for the lord but i wonder if you've ever considered when did john know that he was the one? When did he know that he was the Elijah that was to come? When did he know that he would be that voice in the wilderness? When did he know his cousin Jesus was the one that he was preparing the way for? These boys grew up together. They lived in different towns, but, but they certainly got together for festivals and holidays. We know that Mary and Elizabeth were very close. The families would have come together for celebrations. And what were their interactions like as they grew up together and as they realized, hey, you're the Elijah that is to come, and, and you, well, you're the Messiah. My cousin Jesus is the Messiah. Who would have figured that, right? Well, what was that like for these two boys? And when John realized that his cousin was the one, I wonder if it was difficult for him to step out of the way and to let Jesus take the center stage. Well, look at what happens next in John chapter 3. It kind of gives us a glimpse into what that was like for John. John chapter 3, starting in verse 22, says, After this, and this is right off of his talk with Nicodemus, after he got done speaking with Nicodemus, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John was also baptizing there because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. And an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah, 
but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater and I must become less. Now listen to this. It's really important. At the end of the Old Testament, Malachi gives this prophecy of Elijah to come, the one who is like Elijah, John the Baptist. He's coming. But what happens next is 400 years of silence between the final prophecy of the Old Testament and when John the Baptist comes on the scene in Luke chapter 1. 400 years of nothing John was the first prophet in over 400 years. And if you were a first century Jew and you heard that God was speaking again, God was drawing his people again, the one like Elijah had come, do you think you'd be excited about that after 400 years? Heck yeah. John was a rock star of his day. People listened to him. They were following him. They were baptized by him. Even Herod, who eventually killed John, the Bible tells us in Mark 6.20 that he loved listening to John teach. People were just, you know, they were just mesmerized by this one like Elijah. And John certainly realized the influence that he had. He certainly understood the weight and the importance of his message. But when the disciples come to complain that people are going to Jesus instead of to John, John doesn't join in in their complaining. What does he do? He doesn't play the, the, the prophet card, so to speak. He thinks about himself less, and he exalts the Father. He says, it's not about me. I'm not the Messiah. The message I brought, it was from God, but I'm not the one that you should be focused on. He must become greater, and I must become less. And in that one line, I believe we see the story of John's life. And it should be the story of our lives as well. I must decrease and he must increase. Everything about John's life, his purpose, his mission, was to point toward the Messiah. And for followers of Jesus Christ, that's our mission as well. To point people toward Jesus that we would decrease and he would increase. That we would be humble and he would be exalted. It starts by recognizing that everything good in your life is from God. That all the attention and the praise and the honor belongs to him. It starts when we stop stealing God's glory and we start living for his, his exaltation. What does it look like for your life? It means that if you're a student... And maybe you're the star football player, or the lead cheerleader, or the valedictorian, or the kid who cleans erasers. Do kids still clean erasers? We, had a, we actually had a discussion about this in the office last week. Do they still use chalk in school? I don't know. Whatever. It starts by, by recognizing if you're, you're a student, you know, whatever stage or platform or voice that God has given you, you use it to talk about his goodness. You use it to share his love. You use it to promote his purposes. Exalt the Father in your school. What if you're a businessman or a businesswoman and you get that promotion or your company is just killing it? What should you do? You point that attention and that glory straight back to the Father and you use whatever influence God has given you in the marketplace to raise him up, to point people to Christ. The mission isn't to make more dollars. The mission is to make disciples. 
What's that look like in your workplace? You exalt the father there. It means if you're a stay-at-home mom or a grandparent or a college student, whatever stage of life you're in, it means that you live every moment of every day recognizing God as the source of everything good in your life, giving him thanks and pointing all the glory to him. Listen, the world tells us that we must increase. The word tells us that we must decrease. Which one are you listening to? Let me pray for us. Father God, we just stand before you this morning, humbled by the fact that your son, Jesus Christ, though being in very nature God, did not consider equality with you something to be grasped, but that he laid down his deity, that he veiled it, Father, that while he was fully God, he brought on into his deity full humanity and he chose to live as never more than man. Father, we thank you this morning for the example of Jesus. We thank you that Jesus in his humanity was was our example of how to live and how to do ministry and how to do life. And Father, we stand before this truth now with a choice to make. Will we pursue our own desires, our own glory, our own passions, our own exalting ourselves, Lord, or will we exalt you? And Father, I pray that you would find the story of our lives very much like the story of John the Baptist, that we would decrease so that you could increase. Lord, would you bring this to mind as we move throughout this service, as we move from this place, as we move back into the routines of life, Lord? that we would, we would be ever thinking, Father, I, I must be humble so that you can be exalted. I must decrease so that you can increase. Father, in every moment of every day and every conversation and every thought and every action that you would receive the glory. You're the giver of everything good, Lord. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>